0: Good morning. I'm thankful to be with you all. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. While you're doing that, uh, turn in or on your phone. You can also find it on your phone. There's a ton of free Bible apps. You can just open your phone. So, while you're doing that, I just want to say thank you. Uh, Faith Church, you've been incredible. As we've been transitioning, uh, you've been such a help. You've been an army uh, of support. And so, thank you so much from my family to you uh, it's been just so good to our soul to be so loved and prayed for so thank you thank you thank you thank you I couldn't say all your names uh, I mean just on the day alone of, of when our first truck arrived first truck holy mackerel we're Americans we have two trucks of stuff but anyway the first truck we had like 30 to 40 people coming to help us so thank you thank you thank you thank you Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to begin our path together. We're going to think together about why Jesus matters. Why does Jesus matter today? For some of us, this is a no-brainer. You know, you came to church. You're, uh, this is kind of what you've been doing for a long time. You've been walking with the Lord. You know his promises. You've come to know his goodness and your experience You've you've experienced the gospel. Maybe that that phrase would mean something to you. I've had an experience of the good news of Jesus, of, of salvation, of forgiveness, the hope of eternal life. These things are real to you. You know them. You've been walking in them. But for some of our neighbors, many of our neighbors, really, and for some of you, perhaps, you have questions. There's a disconnect between this first century Near Eastern man and between you and this old book. And you, what does it have to do with right now? There was a guy in 2003 named Jonathan Rauch, and he wrote an article in The Atlantic called Let It Be. And uh, in it, he describes himself, the way he identifies as a human being with respect to religion and spirituality. He, he coined the term, I'm pretty sure he coined the term, uh, apatheist, apatheist. So you can see those two words slammed together there. You see theism, right, and then apathy. So apatheist, he doesn't care about whether or not there's a God or whether any one religion is true. He just doesn't care. And he delights, he, he traces what he sees as a trend, and this is 2003, 18 years ago, a trend in America of what he called the flowering of apatheism. Many more of our neighbors just not caring. It's not just a question of, is the gospel true? Is Jesus the Messiah? All these questions that really matter that we've been seeking after as Christians and um, just human beings for a long time. But now there's, there's the sense of why does it even matter? Why would I even ask the question of whether or not it's true? What difference does it make if it's true? What does it mean for me today? That's what we're going to think about together as we turn to Jesus again in the scriptures. And we're going to encounter him in the midst of hopes for glory, in the midst of shame and, and honesty and hope, Jesus and us. So let's pray and we'll open up these scriptures together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak, that you make yourself known, and you delight to be known by us, and we delight to be known by you, Lord. Uh, please, uh, Holy Spirit, come open up our hearts to, to hear from you, uh, to, to be known by you, Lord. I lower our defenses. Some of us come in with understandable defenses. I pray that you would woo us and uh, help us to feel safe in your presence to hear what you have to say, Lord. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So why does Jesus matter today? The first the first big thing that I want us to see from the scriptures, and if you're a note-taking kind of person, this is the big idea of the sermon. The first thing that we see of why Jesus matters is that he welcomes us into a story of hope. He welcomes us into a story of hope. But I wonder, how do you tell your story and what really is the story that you inhabit? What's the story you inhabit and how do you tell it? To think about that question, that may seem kind of uh, nebulous to you. I'll just illustrate with a few examples from a show that I like to laugh at with Christina. It's called The Good Place. Maybe you're, you're, like, you're har- harshly judging me right now. You watch The Good Place? Oh my goodness. But anyway, it's just a funny show. It's a goofy show uh, where there's great characters and they wake up suddenly. They've died and they're in The Good Place. And uh, these characters are, are some of them, not the people that you would expect to be in the good place. I'm not going to spoil any more than that, so I'll just say that. But the first character, we have a picture of Brent, Brent Norwalk. When I downloaded the image for Brent, it, it was, the file was, Brent the worst, because he's the worst. This guy is awful. So the story that he tells about his life is, I am the winner. I always win. The story that I'm in is one where, inevitably, I win. And if you are lucky enough to be in my story, you might be somebody that I defeat, you know? You're somebody that I beat on my path to glory and victory where I get everything that I want. He was a, he was a child of, of a great deal of privilege, uh, which, which isn't a bad thing necessarily, but it certainly went to Brent's head, inherited his father's business, um, didn't necessarily do a lot with it, but he enjoyed the wealth, and he was winning, And maybe you were lucky enough to know Brent and to to enjoy his entourage. You might have been a character in his story who just got to enjoy his victory, one of his friends. That was from his perspective. That's the way he told his story. Some of us, you know, we all know that that's a caricature, but perhaps some of us are drawn to that kind of a story and we wish that was our story. Maybe there's a little hidden part of us, if we were honest. I wish I could be the winner, right? But for Brent, realize a lot of it's pretense, right? It's a cover-up for he doesn't ever want to be addressed in his weaknesses. He can't handle it. And as the show goes on, you'll see some of those moments when those are finally exposed. He's pretty impenetrable, but you'll see as the show goes on. But then the next character, Chidi, Chidi Anagonia, he's, uh, he's this philosopher. If you wanted to hear his story, he says, I am a seeker of truth. He is longing to know how to orient, orient himself to the universe and to the biggest questions. But the thing is he can't ever land anywhere. Maybe you've known a person like this or maybe you're like this. You would never land anywhere. You just love the questions so much. You just want to ask them all, but you just can't ever commit anywhere. You're just floating around in this mist of knowledge with your feet just above the ground. But that uncertainty can be crippling. And so he, as this confident, it seems, philosopher from the lectern in the academy, personally doesn't have a clue what he's doing in his life. And then he wakes up in the good place. The next one, uh, Tahani. Tahani She would tell you the story, I am a good person. And she's a very publicly good person. She's from a very well-to-do family. The Aljamil family is an Indian family. And they have an older daughter who has uh, been a star. And she's done all sorts of wonderful things. And she's transformed her life. And she's a very public persona who does incredible things. And her parents love the older daughter, but Tahani... Yeah, she's just Tahani. She's always a little bit disappointing. She's just riding her sister's coattails. And Tahani feels this deeply. Maybe you've known this in your life or your family. So her story is, I'm a good person, but the real story is, I'm trying to get approval. I need approval. The resolution she longs for her story is to have approval, to be loved, to be valued. And so she does incredible works of charity, She lives a very good, very publicly good life, but underneath it all is this this fear that really she's not loved. And then you have Eleanor Shellstrop, Eleanor. Eleanor's hilarious, and Eleanor would tell you her story is, I do what I want, I do what I want. That's her story. My story is a story where I do what I want. I don't care who you are, you don't care who who I am, but I do what I want, that's my story. And uh, so she's always hilarious. She's crude, Um, but she's also a person who comes from a very broken past. And much of what she presents herself as in doing what she wants is her hiding herself from relationship and from commitment. She's afraid of it. Her mother neglected her. Her father neglected her. They were a broken home. And she's afraid of love because she's seen it crumble all around her. And so she doesn't want to know it. She doesn't want to open herself up to that possibility. I, I present these different ways of, of the way we kind of tell our stories because I have a feeling, I just have a feeling that, you know, these are the kinds of people that, that we have been, maybe even that some of us are. And, and y'all are so welcome. And Eleanor and Chidi, they'd be welcome. Even Brent, we just have to... Put him in a cage, but he'd be welcome. So, but seriously, and then we come to Jesus, and he tells us the way he says his story. He taught his disciples to talk about him in an honest way. Jesus welcomes us into an honest story of hope, an honest one. We see that in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 of his genealogy. You may be thinking to yourself, you know, face palm, pastor picked a genealogy for his big splash, a genealogy? What was he thinking? And, and not only that, were, we, were the edit, you know, was there an editor? Was there a publicist, you know, for Matthew? What, no one told Matthew, this is a bad idea. You're starting with a genealogy? You know, that's where Bible study plans go to die. You know, it's like Chronicles. If you made it to Chronicles, good job, by the way. But, you know, if you, you know, Genealogy? But, but for a first century Jewish person, genealogy was everything, because lineage and descent from Abraham and from those promises, descent from David, the promise of a great king. And Jesus, what is he called? He's called Christ, and that's not his last name. As we learn, it's a title, anointed one. He's the promised anointed king who would sit on David's throne, the promise of a kingdom without end, the kingdom of peace of his kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. We read at Christmas time in Isaiah 9. And that's what Jesus came to bring to fulfillment. But it's not just this story of glory that floats and hovers over the ground. It's a very real story that even addresses the deep shame of his family. He was a son of much shame. He invites us to tell an honest story, even the story that he tells about himself. So just take a look with this. And if you're a note taker, again, this is point number one. So point number one, when Jesus welcomes us into an honest story, he welcomes us into an honest story about shame. When he tells his story, he does begin with the glorious bookends the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. But then we go into it. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. We'll, we'll come back to that little deviation in the pattern, and his brothers. Jesus is coming to reestablish the people of God, the 12, the brothers there. We'll see Jesus establish a new 12, right? And his disciples, a new people of God. But the real deviation that's repeated here in the pattern where it's X is the father of Y, right? That's just repeated over and over. It comes here in verse three. and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. You have two children, so X, the father of Y and Z, and then you have the mother by Tamar. And here we have the first moment where Jesus is just incredibly honest about the way he tells his story, because he's going to show that the character of his story isn't the way the the Caesars tell their story, the story of winning, stomping on people to achieve greatness. No, it's the story of reaching down in grace and love and gentleness and strength to redeem the most dark places of our stories. Tamar is not a story that you hear often in Sunday school, Genesis chapter 38, Judah has children, and one of them uh, dies. It's Tamar's husband. And when he dies, there's a custom at the time, which will eventually become a law in Deuteronomy 25, a law that would provide a a woman and her family with, with an heir, with offspring. Because again, offspring's everything. They're descending from Abraham. They're descending even further back from Adam and Eve, was given the promise, the promise of an offspring who would crush the serpent's head, the one who brought evil, the very thought of evil into the world, his head would be crushed through the offspring of these people. And so they're looking forward always, and for for there to be no possibility of that was like being cut off from community. And some of you may have known this, mothers who have, uh, or perhaps ones who have wanted to be a mother and didn't have the chance Just just the deep pain of not being able to have a child. That's awful. So you would know what Tamar would feel like, in a sense. Well, Tamar uh, has a a young man brought to her, one of uh, the members of the family. His name's Onan. He doesn't follow through on his commitment. And then Judah just lets it lay. He kind of forgets about Tamar. And so she's left just in her grief and her loneliness. But then Judah experiences a grief of his own. He loses his wife. And so you have these layers of grief in this story. And something that happens in moments of grief, like in other moments of intense sort of traumatic stress and and, and difficulty, we can tend to be exposed in in our weakness and sin and make some really bad choices. And Judah does just that. Uh, It's a really weird euphemism that comes. It's (laughs) So... Judah heads into town and someone tells Tamar that Judah's going to shear his sheep. And so that's a signal to her that she dresses up like a prostitute and she goes and meets him because in her desperation, she wants a child. So Judah's going to shear his sheep apparently and who does he see but Tamar disguised in a veil. And from this mess the savior of the world would come. And so if you've been there and you've made the most awful and you might even risk saying a word like wicked, a wicked choice, something that damages your neighbor terribly, you've just harmed, you've misused, you've taken advantage or in the midst of trauma and grief, you've just gone out and made the worst decision ever. You've put yourself in harm's way and just made a really, really stupid decision. It's not over. It is not over. That's the kind of story that Jesus welcomes us into. It's a story where Tamar and Judah can be welcomed, forgiven, and given purpose, and participate in the great purpose of redemption that God is bringing about in the world. You guys can experience that too. That's the kind of story Jesus welcomes us into. The story keeps going. Verse 4 You've got Ram, the father of Amenadab. We just kind of make up the sounds of the names as we go. So uh, Ram, the father of Amenadab, Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, by Rahab. Just a quick note on the genealogy. It's not a complete genealogy. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a theological genealogy, and it's a very symmetrical one that's, that's done very well so that, you know, they valued the aesthetics of, of symmetry. Um, but, but it's really hard to tell why they divided it into 14 generations, 14 generations, and 14 generations, other than it was a nice symmetry. The, 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 I'll wrap up the, the, the rabbit trail by, by saying the only explanation that I liked, and I can't say that I, that I think I'm certain about it, but I like it, is that 42 generations is six sevens. Seven is a symbol of completeness. Jesus is at the completion of this genealogy, and so he's ushering in the final completion of history, maybe, but who knows. So, end of the rabbit trail about the genealogy, and back to Boaz and Rahab. Rahab didn't just dress up as a prostitute on one occasion. This was actually her vocation. This is how she provided for her family. We don't know why, but she was there. And she had heard of the coming of these people who have a God they called Yahweh. They've heard of these people. They've heard of the great signs. And she wants to be a part of it. And so when these spies come to her city, to Jericho, she hides them from the people that would have them killed. And she sends them back. And God, in his kindness, delivers her and her family and not only delivers them, he not only saves them, but he gives them a part in his story. It's amazing. A Canaanite, a prostitute, given purpose, welcomed. We keep going. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. You gotta read Ruth sometime. We'll, we'll look at Ruth, I think, this Advent together. But this wonderful story of this this woman, Naomi, and her daughters who have lost their husbands. Naomi's lost her husband. They've lost so much, so much grief to the point of terrible trauma, no provision, and they've got to do something. So Naomi decides to go home. The daughters leave, but Ruth sticks around and makes Naomi's God her God, And God gives her the the kindness of a decent man, Boaz. And from that, we have Obed, and then Jesse, and then David the king. Through all that shame, the Lord was gonna bring about a glorious purpose. But even then, once we get to David the king, it's not just a story of glory. Some of us would like to tell the story. We We like a naive Sunday school telling of David's story. And we get a little offended and a little nervous when we tell David the way he really was. Because the next half of the verse does so. Jesus taught his disciples to tell the story honestly, his story. David was the father of Solomon by who? By the wife of Uriah. 2 Samuel chapter 11, we find the wife of Uriah. And David's out. He's supposed to be with his army, defending his people. But he's chilling out at home. And he's up on the roof, creeping on his neighbors. And he sees this beautiful woman. And because he's the king and he has the ability, and he's a winner, he takes her. Misuses a woman who's not his own. And that's why the text reminds us again and again, it's the wife of Uriah, not David's wife. David would even have the man killed when he found out that she had conceived. So you can see that Jesus's story addresses the deepest darkness of our humanity. And that's good news. Because that means the deepest darkness that we could bring to him, he can redeem it. He can still include us in his story. He still has a purpose for us. It's not done. Now, depending on where we come from in our culture today, we may have been trained and mentored by the sort of media that we sort of are mentored by and are listening to. We may have been mentored to like one of these kinds of stories or another. Some of us, on the one hand, would be inclined to be very nervous if we started to tell a story about the misuse of Uriah's wife, of Bathsheba, she has a name. We would be upset about that, and we'd be getting defensive, and we'd be like, don't mess with David, David's my guy, I like David. I don't like the way you're telling that story. But that's the story. And that's the way Jesus taught his disciples to tell it. It's even the way in the Old Testament. I mean, really, so another rabbit trail, forgive me. But, you know, in the Old Testament, we have these, these documents that, that reveal that the kings were sinners. That is so unique in world history, particularly in the ancient Near East. Kings didn't do that. Honest storytelling. So some of us are nervous about that. But the good news that I want you to hear, and this is countercultural good news, is that there is actually healing and forgiveness offered to abusers and to sinners, not just sinned against and abused. David, David, even David, he can be forgiven. He's invited and called upon to repent. You can read that there in 2 Samuel chapter 12. When Nathan calls him to repent. There's an opportunity to turn and follow Jesus. There may be real consequences, and there were for David, as there should have been. But Jesus took the ultimate consequences. And he even enables us, by his grace, by his spirit, in time, to forgive those who have wronged us, to forgive those who have misused authority and power, to even try by grace to love them, to even love enemies, to love Brent Norwalk. And for those of us who maybe would be more aligning ourselves with tearing down the power, sticking it to the man, right? We like that kind of a story. And we align ourselves with with the abused and with those who are on the outs. We would, we would more quickly identify with the wife of Uriah or Tamar or Rahab or Ruth than we would with, with somebody like David or somebody like Judah. This has a, a countercultural welcome to you and a countercultural challenge. The, the countercultural welcome is you're welcome to be healed in Jesus as you are. You don't have to clean up. You don't have to present a nice face. You're welcome to write as you are. The countercultural challenge is that Jesus invites you as well, just like he invited David to turn or to repent and follow him, to give our life to him, to trust not just any old authority, but to trust this one, Jesus, the Messiah, that he's worthy of us to trust him and follow him. You're invited to turn and follow him. It's safe there. But that can be hard. Jesus has a story of shame, but also a story of glory. And as we think about that, that story of glory and who he is as the king, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the one bringing all these promises to fulfillment, For those of us, particularly those who have experienced church in a negative way, who have experienced leaders in a bad way, particularly religious leaders, political leaders, Jesus is both of those, by the way, he's a king. He's the Messiah of Israel and of the world. And if you've experienced those badly, maybe you've got defenses up when you hear me inviting you to turn and follow him with us. There's a moment in the last battle in C.S. Lewis's um, novel there, the last one in the Chronicles of Narnia. There's a moment where uh, there's dwarves, and they have sealed themselves off from the possibility that there could be any Aslan anymore. So Aslan is this lion, and he is the one who's so much like Jesus, and he's the great king across the sea who comes into the story of Narnia many times, and it makes it worth reading but there's a moment where they have become so fed up with all this talk about Aslan and someone has actually dressed themselves up as Aslan in the story. And in the name of Aslan, have been oppressing people. And they're saying, we've had it. We have had it with your stories of Aslan. We don't need any more of that stuff. And when Aslan finally does come, they actually close their eyes and plug their ears and they say to one another, don't take any notice. They won't take us in again because that's the way the dwarves tell their story. We won't be taken again. We're on our defense. We're more clever than other people. We're not gonna listen to you guys. We won't be taken by anybody. And for those who have been through difficult times and difficult relationships, I can understand that. But you know that living that way seals you off from the possibility of experiencing love. It seals you off from the possibility of really living. And that's what Aslan was doing. Aslan was really there. He's breathing upon them. And he's inviting them to follow him further up and further into a new creation. But they're plugging their ears. They're like, nope, nope. He's not even there. So what I'm trying to say as we we kind of take a step and look to Jesus the king is, what if you just peaked with us? It doesn't have to be even here at faith. It can be any group of people, any church where Jesus is proclaimed from the scriptures. Just go look at him. You know, Matthew, it, it keeps going and it keeps getting better. Look at this one and the way he used his authority. He didn't, he didn't just dress up with authority to hurt people. He, he laid down the powers of his authority to save us. So he doesn't have an agenda where he needs something from you and he wants to to get it out of you. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your vote. He wants to redeem you. He wants to restore you. He wants to cover your shame. He wants to invite you into a life of purpose that wells up into eternity and fullness. So how will you respond to this Jesus, this son of David? Some of us... uh, we're, we're still a little bit naive. And we might struggle with this depiction of Jesus as one who actually reaches into the depths and into the darkness. Maybe we think that Jesus only saves people who, who are basically together. People who happen to agree with me about most things. You know, some of those naive assumptions, we need to test them now and again with scripture and with community because Jesus comes as he is to be the real hero of history and of our story. This homeless Palestinian man who was born of a woman out of wedlock. Did you notice the last deviation in his genealogy? Jesus had no father mentioned. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ The anointed Messiah comes from a family with this woman out of wedlock. You could imagine the scandal, the difficulty of that moment. We'll see that next week as Joseph wrestled with it. And we'll see also how the Holy Spirit is the one by whom she was conceived. There's a great glory, but there's also this very deep, difficult shame that Jesus came to overcome. Some of us who are cynical, I just, cynical meaning you're gonna doubt it. your your knee-jerk reaction is to doubt most things. And I totally get that. I feel that pretty often. But there's just something about Jesus that I invite to let. What if we just let ourselves be disarmed for a moment and just look to him, just peek. I'm not asking you to trust everyone. I mean, for now, we're gonna take a long time to get to know each other. For now, I'm not even asking you to trust me. I'm just saying, look to Jesus. Look to him and take a risk with him. We'll be looking to him for a while together. I hope you'd look to him with us. I don't want you to miss out on life that he offers, on the forgiveness and the hope that he offers. At least find out what those are like before you turn your back on him, okay? Please. Okay. And the last thing I wanna say is as we start this walk together, I just want to tell you, I need the thing that Jesus came to do. I I need forgiveness. I need much of my story to be redeemed. I'm not a person who deserves to be here or anywhere. (laughs) But what I'm saying is, could we all tell our story kind of like that? We don't have to become the most self-deprecating people, but a little self-deprecation. Take ourselves a little less seriously, take Jesus a little more seriously. I think that'll help as we learn to follow Jesus together and look to him. We're going to see how he covers all our shame. And in community, whether it's in a small group, whether that's in one-to-one discipleship, whether that's just in, in trust relationship with an elder or another Christian or whomever, I hope you could start being able to tell your story honestly. Honestly. Can you tell an honest story about your life and know that you have hope? that's what I want you to be able to do. Why does Jesus matter today? Because he welcomes us into an honest story of hope. It addresses us in our deepest darkness and brings us into the light of his kingdom. So let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, our Savior. Thank you for grace upon grace upon grace. It's in his name we pray. Amen.